And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Soccer Show, we're back and we're reviewing the denouement of the 2022 World Cup group stages. This group stage has been pretty wild all the way, but nothing's been crazier than this third match day. South Korea are through and the AFC is flying and you'll probably love that unless you're Uruguayan. Yes, Suarez was in tears. It was hard to see, but maybe Uruguay should have tried scoring before match day three. Brazil are through with a six-point boon after pooping the bed against Cameroon, and one of the craziest games of the group in the final round was where Switzerland and Serbia never ceased to astound. The standard of this group stage has been surprisingly high, but next time, FIFA, Let's do this thing in June and July. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who derives no satisfaction whatsoever from seeing Luis Suarez crying on the bench, Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Oh, it was a wonderful moment uh, because it really, for all the world, seemed like there wasn't going to be that comeuppance that Uruguay were going to get through, that it was going to be at Ghana's expense with a missed penalty. And then it doesn't end up being the case. And you do see him sad. It felt like a nice moment for Ghana, who... To their credit, we're still playing. They were still pretty open when Uruguay were chasing at the end. Uh, so they still tried to make it a game. Uh, but sad Suarez is a, is a happy moment yet yeah, for me. Yeah, it's, it's so sad. It couldn't have happened to a nicer guy, in my opinion. <laughs> um, also here, a man who loves a good five-goal thriller on match day three, Joe Lowry. Hello. Oh, Ryan, I do. I said this on the Bleacher Report show that we just did, but there was a guy next to me, some sort of college soccer coach, and I were sitting next to each other on the flight back to Phoenix from New York. He had Argentina-Poland pulled up on his phone. I had Argentina-Poland pulled up on my phone. We were also checking the score of Mexico against Saudi Arabia. I know this is a couple of days now. All of these games are out of date, but Ryan... Things have been crazy at the end of this group stage. I have enjoyed it so much. I cannot believe they're talking about getting rid of this format for 2026. Don't do it, FIFA. Come on. Don't don't ruin the World Cup more than you already have. Yeah, group stage has really kicked off when we decided to take a travel day, Joe. You're quite right. Very good stuff. Uh, rounding out our gang, a man who elected to watch the wrong game when Serbia and Switzerland mm. were going at it just now. Graham Rutherford, hello. Hello, yes, I definitely did. I realised that about 20 minutes in to tonight's games, but I had committed to covering the Cameroon-Brazil game. I uh, I then watched about 80 minutes of that match and then missed the one goal in that game because we were doing our Bleacher Report live show. So yeah, um, all round excellent stuff from me tonight. Yes, very good indeed. Um, by the way, uh, if you, thank you if you joined us on the Bleacher Report app. We'll be doing pre and post shows for the US game against the Netherlands on Saturday if you're listening to this in time. Also, please join us on patreon.com slash Show for plenty of bonus World Cup content. And thank you to everybody who has supported us there so far. Lots of extra podcasts, videos and extra content there. So please do check it out. And uh, apologies once again, listener, for us uh, choosing to do, have our travel days to, to return to our expect, uh, respect time zones when loads of really cool stuff happened Graham basically we had <laughs> drama in group A with Germany losing um, losing out on the World Cup and Japan uh-huh. beating Spain with a controversial goal we had Belgium going out with a draw against Croatia we had Morocco going through top of their group Australia going through Graham we live, in the, we live on the timeline where Australia went through goodness me Come dog is going to be in the last 16 of a World Cup, and I'm not sure I'm ready for that world. I'm not sure anyone is ready for that world. But, yeah, some really weird stuff happened in, in, in match day three. We spoke, I can't remember if it was on the main feed show or whether it was in Patreon bonus show, but we kind of spoke after match day two about what we thought about this tournament so far. And I think the general consensus was, besides maybe two or three shocks, it hadn't been all that memorable. I think that's changed now. There's been a, a lot of games now that will live long in the memory. I know tonight's games were a little bit 
crazy and certainly this afternoon's games this morning's game if, games if you watched in the US but actually last night's games with Spain and Germany and Japan and Costa Rica there was a moment in those two games last night where Spain and Germany were both heading out of the World Cup when Costa Rica were winning against Germany which just I, I don't th- I still don't think I've got my head around uh, what what was happening there can anyone explain that I certainly can't really explain it with Germany who I think over the course of this World Cup were generally quite good and have now gone out in the last 16 I think there's a chance that Germany are, are being overanalyzed in terms of what went wrong for them at this World Cup I've seen a lot of long Twitter threads and the German tabloids promising an inquest and maybe even another reboot of German football but I think if you look at the underlying numbers of their World Cup they just didn't take their chances. They had the highest expected goals of any team in the group stage. And the, the way they missed their chances against Japan was particularly painful because that's what cost them in the end. And they got unlucky in a sense that there were two very capable underdogs in that group, especially Japan, who've gone through to the last 16. And so the margins were very thin. So one bad half against Japan was essentially what it came down to for Germany. And that has kind of been a, a, a theme of chaos through match day three of, of the group stages. There's going to be a lot of people, and Graham, you got at this, who are making a lot out of Germany's exit. And and to an extent, I get that. I thought this tweet, though, from John McKenzie, who does work for TIFO and The Athletic, really summarized my thoughts. So the tweet is, Spain, tournament favorites, purveyors of perfect positional play, beat Costa Rica, drew with Germany, lost to Japan. Germany, a shambles, unbalanced, embarrassing team, lost to Japan, drew with Spain, and beat Costa Rica. This is just the World Cup, people. This is what we love so much about this tournament. It is unjust. It is unfair. But, oh boy, is it entertaining. Yeah. I mean, there are certainly going to be areas that Germany can maybe work on and try to develop and, like, maybe deepen that player pool a little bit. But this almost feels like from tournament to tournament, it will be what we talked about with Argentina versus Saudi Arabia, where, like, heading into the next Euros, I could see it being like, oh, Germany, they crashed out. You know, maybe they need to rebuild. Maybe they're not going to be there. And then Germany end up making the final at the Euros because this was a... A strangely good but ultimately bad performance. I don't think they need to tear it all up. And I don't think they should sack Hansi Flick. I don't know where we are in that news yet or if he is still around. But I hope he sticks around for the Euros. I think he has a contract through the Euros. I think it would be a mistake for him to depart now. Indeed. Well, Germany not through to the knockout rounds. Uh, Australia and Poland are through. Thanks, Obama. Yeah, great. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, why don't we get to the action from Friday's denouement of the group stages. We'll start off with South Korea 2, Portugal 1. Huang Yi Chan with a 90th minute winner in dramatic fashion, fitting of this tournament, Joe. Uh, 90th minute winner there to send South Korea through at the expense of Uruguay, who are playing simultaneously, of course. Korea, Joe, going through on goals scored. Mmm... This game was so good. Ryan, Graham, I know, I think you watched this game with me, Graham. I don't remember if that's true or not. At least we won this battle. I I guess there was a lot to like in Ghana, Uruguay as well. But so much drama in this match. I was really thrilled that I, I sort of got this one of the two matches. South Korea didn't show a ton in this game. But oh boy, did they show it just when they needed to at the end. So Portugal, go ahead. They get an early lead. South Korea snag one back on a corner. Lots to play for as the second half approached. The second half was not super fun. Portugal were dull. They didn't have a lot going for them. South Korea were biding their time, waiting for the right moment to strike, not wanting to get too open so Portugal could then counterattack right through them. And they waited, and they waited, and they really waited. It's second half stoppage time. It's a Portugal corner. So set piece is very important for South Korea in this game. It's a Portugal corner. Hyomin Son gets the ball on the outside of South Korea's own box. He drives the ball all the way down to, uh, to the other end, to the edge of Portugal's box, and he slips in Huang Hee-chan for the late winner. And the ball here is so good. Son splits a defender's legs. He draws multiple defenders to himself before laying the ball forward uh, for, for Chan. Just an unreal moment in this game. The commentary that was going on Twitter of South Korea, um, and, and there are commentators, I believe, in South Korea going off about this game. It was Mm. so good. The end of this match was incredible. South Korea pulled it out just when they needed to, and credit to them. I'm still not in love with this team, but if we're talking Mm. about a team that has proven already they can play spoiler, I mean, come on. Round of 16, anything can happen. So there were two things that I loved about the winning goal. One was... One of the things I love about the World Cup is watching 
big goals in the commentary of that country, like foreign commentary, yeah. and the South Korean commentary for this goal was absolutely sensational. It seemed like they had about four or five commentators on the call, and they're basically just all screaming when this uh, when this goal goes in and sends South Korea through to the last 16. I also very much enjoyed, so Mauricio Pochettino was one of the B- uh, BBC pundits for this game. He's in the stadium, and he you can see there's like genuine glee. BBC, I think, put out the video of him in the in, in the box, you know, the, the, the commentary box watching this goal and you can see there's genuine glee from him as obviously one of his former players and someone that he still ha- holds a lot of affection for um, scores the or doesn't score the winning goal but sets up the winning goal for South Korea so that was a nice moment but I also enjoyed just South Korea showing what they're what they're capable of and, th- and this was the sort of South Korea performance I thought we would see at this World Cup so I did the preview for South Korea and I highlighted that their game was all about getting in behind and all about really Son Hyung Min in the, in, the, in the final third. And we hadn't really seen that from them at this, at this World Cup. And as Joe mentions, it certainly wasn't there for the full match. But there was a move just before the hour mark where, I think it was about 55 minutes, where Korea were so sharp and playing out from the back and then slipping Son in behind. And there's a really nice kind of bent run from Son to move away from the defender. And at that point, I kind of sat up and take a little bit more notice because it was a sign of things to come and it was a sign of South Korea kind of gathering a little bit of momentum. And we saw that for the winning goal. The movement to the edge of the box was was fantastic, was quick. And then, as Joe mentions, the passing behind for Son and then the finish from Hwang Hee Chan was, was just fantastic. And their entire World Cup had been building to that moment. And we spoke about the thin margins for, for Germany. And on the flip side of that, I don't think South Korea have been great at this World Cup, but they ended up on the right side of the of the thin margins. And um, having done the preview, and I kind of thought they had something within them, it was pleasing from a personal point of view to see them execute their game plan in this match. Well, for the second day running, an AFC team beat one from the Iberian Peninsula by a 2-1 scoreline and went through. Also the first time ever there's three AFC teams in the World Cup knockout stages with Korea, Australia and Japan. Um, and Portugal going through top of the group though, Joe. Anything to learn from this game from them? Are, we, are, they, are they less assured than we felt before this game kicked off? Nothing changes about Portugal for me. They, they clearly didn't care a ton about winning this game. It was a heavily rotated side from Fernando Santos. There was one thing for Portugal that caught my eye, one player really. It's Vitinha, who moved to PSG over in the summer. This was one of my first times watching him in depth. He was unreal in this match. Google has him at five foot eight. There is no shot that he's five foot eight. He's got to be five six, somewhere in that range. He is like a fun sized candy bar out there, but like he's good what enough sort for the of point. candy bar, Joe. That's the uh, real question. Uh, Milky Way, maybe. Uh, what's it like? A, what's a, whatever the best candy bar is. That's why I felt about about Vitinha in this game. He was electric to watch, which of course means that we won't see him in the rest of the tournament because Fernando Santos isn't in the business of playing electric soccer, and that's fine. <laughs> you can make a deep run in the World Cup. You can win the Euros. And, and this has happened for Portugal before, you can make deep tournament runs without playing that kind of soccer. But Vitinha, I'm guessing a lot of mm. folks out there have already seen him from his time in Portugal and now obviously playing for PSG. But man, he is electric. Another player who I think might have played his way into the Portugal starting lineup was potentially Diogo Dallo, who starts his first game of, of this World Cup. Um, so he gets the assist for the Portugal goal, and I thought he was very effective at getting forward down the right. But having Dallo on the right means that Yao Cancelo's on the left, and I thought he was much more effective there than he's been on the right at this World Cup, where actually he's faced quite a bit of criticism playing on that on that right side. So Cancelo had the most touches of any Portugal player, and Dallo was third in that list. And the South Korea narrow defence did help in that regard. But I just thought having Cancelo on the left, Dallo on the right, it made them a more dynamic team in the wide areas. I think Nuno Mendes... I'm not totally sure about this, but he picked up an injury in the last game, so maybe that's a factor for the last 16 as well. But even if Mendes is available, I would stick with Dallo and, and Cancelo. I think it gets both players into their preferred positions, their best positions for this Portugal team. So I agree, Joe. Virginia is a very exciting player. I I don't. I agree. I think Fernando Santos is unlikely to stick with yep. him for the round of 16, but Dallo, I think, could actually make that position stick. Joe, I love that you were outraged at him being labeled 5'8 and him actually being 5'6. That's quite a small discrepancy. I mean, I, I feel like you see a 5'8". Per- so I'm 5'10", to be clear. Ryan, you and Graham are both tall. I know this now very much from spending a week and a half with you in person. I think a 5'6 person you tend to think of as being a little bit on the smaller side. Okay. Vitinho looked tiny out there, saucing up everybody. And it makes him that much more fun to watch. He looks like a, a kid who's playing up a few age brackets and youth soccer. I just, I loved it so much. I loved it so much. It was great. 
All right. Well, it's good that you uh, have the discrepancy between eight inches and six inches. Some people would appreciate that probably in your life, Joe. <laughs> Portugal are going to be taking on Switzerland in the knockout stages and South Korea are facing Brazil oh when they move on. Sorry about that, gents. Uh, let's move on to the other game, Group H, where neither of the teams went through. Ghana nil, Uruguay 2. Taylor Rocco, you were chief executive in charge of watching this game. Uh, Uruguay beating Ghana again at the World Cup, but neither going through here, as we say. The Arisketa... Arasketa? I don't know how to say his surname, I must admit. Ne- neither does Fox, so don't worry about <laughs> okay. it. Okay, that guy scored the brace. The, the, the uh, second goal was a superb volley as well. Uh, what did we make of this one, Taylor? It was wild. Not just the scoreline, not just that it was Uruguay finally looking like a team that could play, but then the fact that it went from everybody in the stadium celebrating, all the Uruguay fans uh, like up on their feet, chanting, singing, having a good time, and suddenly energy out of the room. Uh, everybody realizes that South Korea have scored and that game ends, I think, about seven minutes before this one did. So there was this moment, there was a good like ten, maybe 10 minutes when it felt like both teams, Ghana wanted to get something. They wanted to score a goal. They stayed open. Uruguay were, were pushing forward and it was back and forth. There was no like, midfield for about 10 no, minutes of this match. Not. And it was crazy how they were both like turning it over in really bad positions, but then the other team would then turn it back over, and it was just so back and forth. It was frenetic. It was crazy. A lot of diving, a lot of uh, VAR decisions going uh, against teams that really needed those VAR decisions. Uh, but in the end, a, a really interesting game that strangely doesn't matter. Like at, at, For a while there... I had this whole tactical analysis of of uh, how Uruguay had finally put it together. Diego Alonso got things right. It felt like a team that were then primed to make this run. And then it kind of doesn't matter because they don't go through. So in the end, it's a win for them. And that's great. But mm. it's a win that doesn't really mean all that much. Yeah, there, there was something beautifully poetic about mm-hmm. Uruguay trying to kill the game for 45 minutes, <laughs> right. then subbing off yep. their best attackers only to discover mm-hmm. that they needed another goal with five minutes left to play. Yeah, um, yeah I, I enjoyed was, that. I enjoyed the shot. And Freud there, that, and it was a very uh, I don't Joe I don't know how much this was like a Diego Alonso moment, but it felt like one to me because uh, Tim Vickery wrote a good tweet about how uh, when they were two 0 up at halftime uh, that we needed to give some credit to Alonso. Uruguay have never managed to fit Diarasqueta with two strikers because he wants to drift centrally. It means taking risks, but with Oliveira advancing and the strikers willing to work left, they found a way to do it, and that is exactly what happened. Diarasqueta kept moving inside. Either Suarez or Nunez would move out wide to create overloads with Oliveira, or they would just let Oliveira patrol that whole side by himself. But both goals come from Diarasqueta being central. Uh, the second one, a reminder of just how good Uruguay could have been. It's a really nice moment when Palestri receives in the right half space, turns inside, sort of fakes like he's going to go outside, turns inside, drives forward. He hits a driven pass at Darwin Nunez's face. So maybe not the best pass there. Nunez heads it to Suarez. Suarez with like an overhead pass kick sort of thing uh, that goes over his head. And then it's uh, one-timed by Diarasqueta for a 2-0 lead. And at that moment, it feels like, okay, Uruguay are going to do it. it it's it's going to be them making this run. Uh, and then that ends up not being the case. And that would have felt especially sad for Ghana, not just because of the 2010 drama when Suarez has the handball, he's red carded, uh, um, uh, who was it who missed the penalty? Asamo Gian misses the penalty, and then Ghana going to lose in penalties this time. But this one starts with Mohamed Kudush drawing a penalty. VAR looks at it again, realizes, yep, he's been fouled. They give the penalty. Up steps Andre Ayu, the only rem- remaining member of that squad from 2010. He misses the penalty. Ghana pretty shell-shocked. You could tell they were sort of out of it. They were a little too open. They weren't playing their game anymore. Uruguay get those two goals, and then both AU brothers substituted at halftime. Certainly not the way he wanted to end his tournament. Uh, Ghana, I think, ended up fighting, so there's that. But I think to lose to Uruguay again with Suarez on the pitch, even if Uruguay don't end up going through, I doubt it feels like a victory for Ghana. Uh, your social media video of Ghana fans after the game would disagree, Taylor. They seem right. to be celebrating in, Ghana, in, in Uruguay's history. Um, I love Uru- that. Uruguay, yeah, exactly. Uruguay had a penalty call not given by VAR. They had another shout as well. Um, where Cavani, yeah. if you looked at it slow motion, he was absolutely looking for the contact. He like pulled his left leg out in front of the defender to trip the defender. And the VAR, the, the VAR nor the ref were fooled by that one. I wasn't impressed by that. But Taylor, this seemed to be like poop house central. 
oh, after yeah. Uruguay started to realise, oh, we've taken all our attackers off and we still need a goal. And the, the players hounding the referee into the tunnel at the end of the game. Fede Valverde, when Ghana yep. missed the penalty, yep. literally celebrating in the referee's face and waving his fist. I was like, dude, you've got to play the rest of the game with that referee. Why are you doing that? That's poor form. Fede, I love you, but don't do that. It, it happened a couple times in this one where you saw them complaining or really having a go at the official over what VAR did. VAR would call something offside and then all the Uruguayan players would get in the ref's face. And it's like, guys, fellas, he's not calling that one. Like, he doesn't get, he doesn't get to override the machines uh, until, you know, Terminator happens and then we'll see how it goes. But until then, uh, the, the center official was going to make those decisions. And it was really odd how much they were trying to, I guess not that odd, but they, like the gamesmanship, the, the housery, the dark arts, all very much on display at a time when, I, to the point Graham made, I think if they hadn't made some of those more defensive changes, if they had just stuck with it, they could have won this game 4-0. It wasn't really until Ghana realized, like, oh, we can ruin this tournament for them, that they had a spark. Until then, it was all uh, Uruguay, and it could have been that for the end of the game. It could have been 3-0, 4-0 if Suarez stays on, if they bring in Cavani and really just go for it. I I think it was there for the taking, and they could have advanced. Also really odd that as it was looking like it might come down to fair play points, they were accumulating some yellow cards so i think at that point they realized we just got to score a bunch of goals and they didn't end up doing that so they didn't end up advancing they did not indeed yeah neither team advancing from this one in group h uh why don't we take a quick break when we come back we're going to look at the end of group g we had at least one very good match back shortly looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our World Cup group stage denouement review. I've used the word denouement about five times. I'm sorry. I've you just, yeah, it just sounds fancy, Ryan. Yeah, I, I I'm it. not that fancy, I promise you. Um, Cameroon won Brazil nil, Graham. Cameroon, um, interesting performance from them. Until the end, they didn't look particularly interested in going for yeah. it. Maybe even at the end they didn't. It looked like they were playing for a draw when a draw was no good for them. But they still got the three points here. Indeed, yeah. It was a strange performance by Cameroon, and I agree. It For large parts of this game, weirdly passive, given that they needed a win from this match to stand any chance of going through. Obviously, the result in the other game means that this result in the end doesn't really matter for, for Cameroon. But it, it was there for them against a Brazil team who made a whole raft of changes. And similar to the, the Portugal game against South Korea, I'm not entirely sure how much Brazil really care about what happened in this game. I think it was largely about just making sure that their, their key performers were arrested for the, for the last 16. Um, so they change out their, their entire front line and you have Gabriel Jesus starting, Anthony on the right wing, Rodrigo and then Martinelli. Midfield two of Fred, Fabinho and then Alex Telles. Danny Alves comes into this team, uh, 39-year-old Danny Alves. I think he's started at every World Cup since 1930 now. And then Bremer and Militao, Ederson being the only player who keeps his place in this Brazil team so very much about rotation for them Cameroon the way they set up there were times in this match when it felt like they were playing on the edge particularly in in, in the first half and part of the problem was that Cameroon's defence was stretched very very wide so they wanted to get the, the full backs out there um, in possession or out in, in possession but um, when they didn't have the ball it basically just allowed Brazil to drive through the middle of them because there was so much space and the final product was missing from Brazil um, but they only really needed one pass to get into the final third was that was the, the amount of space that Cameron were leaving for them and had there been a little bit more cohesion and I have some sympathy for Brazil because that front line is they've basically been thrown together there wasn't much in the way of attacking sequences so it was largely about players carrying the ball and, and trying to produce something on their own Martinelli comes close with a couple of shots but in terms of what Cameroon produced, uh, Brazil were very deep defensively for, for parts of this match, probably to stop Cameroon from getting in behind like they were able to do against Serbia. And it's only 
was it five minutes from the end or something like that that Cameroon get the goal it's a very good ball into the box Abubakar gets his head to it a very good header from him and then he's shown a second yellow card for taking his shirt off and celebrating despite the fact that even at that point even at that late stage you know something could happen in in the other game the match was still very much there for Cameroon so yeah chaos was in this match as well even if the scoreline wasn't all that eventful yeah that, that second yellow was hands down the best part of this game but at least for Cameroon's sake, the goal was lovely. The fact that uh, the fact that Abubakar ends up with the second yellow when things are still in play was hilarious. I loved every bit of it. I think Cameroon knew that they were very, very, very unlikely to go through at that point, which was true, even if they were still mathematically alive. Brazil, in, in this game in general, to me, Graham, you can correct me if you feel otherwise, it felt a lot like Argentina, Saudi Arabia. Maybe not in terms of the exact game flow but of a giant coming in, dominating a game and losing, which is exactly what happened in that very early on in this tournament game between those two teams that I just mentioned. Argentina go down and they lose 2-1. This game, the stakes are very different. There's not a lot here that Brazil are really playing for other than seeding in the round of 16. But I mean, they were dominant, right? Cameroon didn't have a shot until first half stoppage time. They, They didn't really look threatening for large stretches of this game. Brazil, on the other hand, even though they lost, I still am incredibly bullish on them. And it it was a reminder for me, this match, of Brazil's scary depth. Graham, you talked about that front line being thrown together. Martinelli was the one who stood out to me in this match on the left wing. I thought he was brilliant on that side, breaking into the box. He has a header early on that saved. He, I believe, completed the most dribbles of any player in this game. He was constantly aggressive. He was constantly breaking forward. He was a real threat, and he's not going to start in the round of 16, or at least I'd be shocked if he did over Vinicius Jr., That's just where this Brazil team is. I honestly don't know how you stop them, at least not for 90 minutes. They will always have a moment or two. Those moments today were there. They didn't result in goals. That's kind of how soccer works sometimes. Brazil is still very, very scary. Joe, if I could uh, really quickly, uh, nothing about this game. Between the time that we left New York and you got home, when did you join the witness uh, like protection service? (laughs) Oh, yeah, very, very recently, Taylor, just a couple hours ago. So uh, you might need to explain that visual joke yeah. to this podcast audience. <laughs> I did already take a screen grab, so I'll have to post Good. that somewhere. Uh, but yes, uh, listeners, we're recording with video. Uh, we don't often do that, but we are this time. Uh, and Joe, I'm, I'm assuming, is recording in an area where he's trying to limit as much echo as he possibly can, but as a result, has no light on his face. So when mm-hmm. he laughs, it suddenly sounds like there's a stranger coming in from out of nowhere. I think he's in uh, the Tora Bora Mountains recording these. This. You know, this yeah, is what Joe, I get for sacrificing my myself for the audio quality of TSS. Man, I, I just get it. I just get razzed. I'm sorry, buddy. You're right though. We should do the voice modulation and and just go full. Brazil, we're dominating. Anyway, we appreciate your efforts, Joe. All the same, visuals or not, uh, Brazil going through, of course, and they will face South Korea as we mentioned earlier. The other game, slightly more eventful, Taylor. Serbia two, Switzerland three. Switzerland going through, and they'll face um, Portugal as well Uh, the wildest game of a wild tournament arguably maybe even for the first half here I believe I saw it as the first 2-2 half time since England Argentina in 98 which was another very eventful game I think that stat stands Um, but my my big takeaway Taylor was this looked like the most humid game because everyone's shirts was really stuck to them they looked really really sweaty in this one so this one might have been the, the, the hardest for the players arguably yeah I think so a pretty intense game for sure not just because of the temperature and that made it like even more enjoyable because if you told me it was a really eventful game between Serbia and Switzerland, I would think, oh no, how many red cards were there? Not necessarily <laughs> how many goals were there. And in this one, there were several. Uh, it was a really, really fun game to watch because it was a Serbia team that needed to get something. They needed to get the win against uh, Switzerland. And Switzerland didn't. They were, they were, I think, happy with a draw, but they jump out to a lead because Serbia played pretty much the exact same way they played against Cameroon. They changed the shape a little bit but their overall style was very, very attacking. You have Zivkovic as the right wing back. You have Kostic again as the left wing back. Though Kostic, for the most part, was playing as like a central attacker or wide attacker. And that was part of the problem is that they left themselves wide open. So they, they concede the opener where they go up two to one. And then they concede two more goals because they're just so stretched. They're so spread. Uh, and they, they really did cause their own problems. Um, the second goal in particular, Kostic is forward, then he moves central. And there's just a, a massive amount of space for the Swiss to attack into and they really can just pick their spots it ends up being a, a, a like an easy ball across for Brielembolo who taps in at the far post but Serbia going for it so much that I think their back line was never really able to get set and play a cohesive style which was surprising to me given that they got up to that lead 
And then they let the Swiss back into it. And it's a credit to Switzerland that they have the talent and ability to keep going forward and turn the game around. And it makes me far more bullish about their chances in the knockout round for sure. Okay, so let me ask you about Switzerland. Mm -hmm. I think if you... This this is a blind spot in my knowledge, Taylor. I think they're probably the team at the World Cup I know the least about. And I wrote their Euros preview not that long ago. But that uh, might like, say something about your Euros preview, right? And my memory, <laughs> and my memory, definitely. But what what can we expect from them against Portugal? Like, are they going to be? I don't think they're going to be this open, are they? I, I would assume not. And, and it is sort of their own uh, fault that they go down early. Uh, now, admittedly, the first one you could make an argument that there was a foul, but it's a turnover in midfield. Uh, Serbia counterattacks pretty effectively. Mitrovic gets a really good sort of glancing header. The second one is just fully uh, the Swiss giving the ball away. They just pass it straight to Serbia. Serbia counterattack. Uh, Mitrovic plays in uh, Vlaovic, who has a really nice finish. Sort of fortunate that he's able to keep control as he cuts across the box, but then he finishes back across himself to the far side netting. And it was Serbia be, or excuse me, Switzerland being too open and giving the ball away. I think if they tighten up and just don't make those little mistakes and I think against an opponent where they don't have a lot of history, maybe they're not going to be quite so emotional, quite so amped up. Maybe they will be more cautious. I hope not too cautious because another aspect of this game that I enjoyed was just the way they attacked. It was numbers forward. It was Shakiri especially willing to pick up the ball deeper and drive through the middle. And then I think because he is Jordan Shakiri, but also because here's the power cube driving at you in the heart of your defense, Serbia just collapsed numbers and it almost always left someone out wide or somebody open and he could just have a little layoff and get the ball back and get a shot off or a little layoff and then there's another layoff and then there's a shot. But the way... Uh, the Swiss transition from defense to attack, I thought was really impressive. I thought Briel Embolo reminded me in some ways of Kiefer Moore, beefy Kiefy against the United States, that it's, it felt like Serbia, even though they had three center backs, no one was really trying to beat him to the ball. They were letting him sort of control it, get there first, and then they'd try to put in a play. Oftentimes he's then 3v1 or 4v1, but he kept making stuff happen. He kept holding the ball up well and alleviating some of that pressure, and he gets a goal for it. So I thought he was excellent. I thought Jibril uh, So in the middle uh, did a great job of moving around, finding little pockets of space, and sort of interchanging with Vargas and Shakiri, uh, depending on whether one of them wanted to operate more centrally. And Vargas and Froiler's combination for the winner, if people haven't seen it, you need to. It's it's a kind of like a, a like a little like like dink ball in uh and uh it's Vargas who has a Travella outside of the put, foot flick that goes to further further than one times it and that gives them the win but they're very capable of playing this pretty like pretty attractive intricate attacking football they can also sit back and frustrate and then counterattack. Uh, I think the Swiss have a variety of ways to beat you especially if you beat yourself at the same time the way Serbia sort of did yeah you're right to point out the um potential political uh, conflict mm -hmm. here as well obviously um, when Serbia took on Albania a little while ago th that match was abandoned there was like a drone on the field mm -hmm. and when many Swiss players having Albanian heritage as well there was a potential for um, politics to override this one but it was the soccer that won out ultimately Taylor. yeah I think uh, so the last time they met uh, you had uh, what was it Shakiri and Xhaka doing the like the oh, eagle the, the double the, eagle yeah. celebration eagle gesture yeah, yeah. Um, they they were both, I think, fined, and then they were threatened with suspension if they did it again. So Shakiri, when he scores his goal, uh, it's a deflected goal, it's the opener. He does run, I don't know if it's deliberate, but he runs in front of the Serbia supporters, and then just, he like jumps and does the thumbs to his name, which you could take as just being like, yeah, you know, he's just celebrating, I scored, remember the name. It could also well be like, you know my name, you know who I am in front of the Serbia fans. So it may be a more low-key celebration, but you did have the benches flare up, some yellow cards for bench players. There was a moment when it seemed like things might boil over. No full escalation, no red cards, uh, but a very, yeah, definitely emotionally charged game that the referee was desperately trying to keep control of. That's true. And there was that moment, I think, where the Serbian player, all subs all came on the field and they they kind of wouldn't get off the field. So a yeah, a little bit. little yeah. bit of that going on. Speaking of the power cube, Jordan Shakiri, he's now one of just three players to score each of the last three Men's World Cup tournaments. Can any of you name the other two? Say that again. One what, of three players to have scored at each of the last three Men's World Cups. Ronaldo. There's, including this one, I take it, because obviously he's scored in this including one. Including this um, one. Ronaldo is a correct answer. There's one other player. I'm going to assume he's English based on your tone. <laughs> You'd be wrong. It's Leo Messi. Okay. So, uh, oh, right. okay, that is in good company with Ronaldo and Messi in that one. Uh, another quick one for you. He's the second MLS player to score at this World Cup. Who is the other one? Ah, uh, 
I don't like this game. He's Welsh. He's <laughs> oh, Gareth Bale, of course. Yeah. Oh, Gareth Bale. Yeah. Yeah, this does. This win does mean Matt Doyle tweeted this, and he was right. This win does mean for Switzerland that the Chicago Fire have won the World Cup. So, congrats to the city of Chicago. Congrats indeed to Cheetown. Well done. Oh, uh, and a, a little bit of trivia for you all from this one. Can you guess the player that Warren Barton knew in this game? Uh, is was it, it Shakira Taylor? It is. Yes. That's, hey, that's there it is. <laughs> He knew a couple other ones. He was he was better this time. Somewhat. Cool. All right. <laughs> On that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we've got a big, big preview for Saturday's big, big game. Argentina, Australia. No, Netherlands versus the USA. Coming up after this quick break. Back shortly. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We are going to preview the big one, the Netherlands taking on the USA. Taylor, it's been 20 long years since the United States were in the quarterfinals of a World Cup, which, as we noted on our BR show, makes us all feel incredibly old. I think the White Stripes are probably top of the music charts back then, maybe the Strokes or the Hives. I only know indie music. Um, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. I'm not sure <laughs> you're familiar with, with the top vibes. of the charts there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, Taylor, this one is a massive, massive game. Uh, one of the biggest games in uh-huh. modern US soccer history. Yeah, I, I, it absolutely is. I, and, and 
You're right to call back to uh, 2002. Uh, it's coming home, which is to say the U.S. making it to the quarterfinals is coming home because that's what's going to happen in this one. Uh, but I, I think I think for the U.S., for the way this year has played out, especially heading into this tournament with the lackluster performances at best and some of the friendlies, it felt like the, the stage was set for things to go poorly, for this to be uninspiring. And I, frankly, was, was very nervous about that because, number one, I didn't want the U.S. to be bad at a World Cup. But I think also... Uh, and I'll include Joe in this. Uh, Joe, feel free to disagree. But I think on the whole, the two of us have been more, if not pro Burhalter, than sort of Burhalter's the coach. We understand what he's trying to do. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes it does, and he's unfairly criticized. But I did feel like over his tenure, he has been building. He has been figuring out different positions, figuring out depth options, figuring out different ways of playing. There are still holes in the way they want to play, but if the U.S. did not perform at this tournament, it felt like that was four years wasted. It felt like we, we were not really building towards anything, and so that they did get out of the group, that they did get that win on the last day. I think there's still certain question marks around this team for sure, but it's it now feels like this is an opportunity for the United States to win that game, to go at the Dutch, to make it difficult for them, if nothing else, and just remind people why it's really fun to have the United States at a World Cup and why it means so much to so many people and that they made it to the knockout round, the only CONCACAF team that did that, I think especially exciting for me uh, and, and really, really hopeful that they're able to keep that momentum going against the Dutch. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not pro or anti Berhalter. Yeah. Either either way. I mean, I I don't really know that I could fall down on on either side there. I think he's done a lot of things well. I think he's done a lot of things that have been frustrating and, and made decisions that I wouldn't have made either. So I don't know. I don't I don't want to wade into that necessarily. But I do think the U.S. has a shot in this game against the Netherlands. To think about that game in and of itself, the U.S. has quality advantages in certain parts of the field against a really good team. That's cool, right? I mean, I think this matchup for the U.S. in the the round of 16, given what Group A looked like, is about as good as it could have been. The U.S. being in Group B, that was maybe the toughest group. It was certainly the toughest group based off of average FIFA ranking. Group A, then having Qatar in it, means that the Netherlands, as the Pot 2 team, basically became the Pot 1 team. And now the U.S. has, I think, a real shot. I don't think they're favored here. I said the U.S. would get out sort of tongue-in-cheek on the Bleacher Report show. I, I do think... The odds are certainly with the Netherlands here. And if I had to put money down on this game, I would put it on the Dutch. But the U.S. have a real shot. They have a quality advantage in midfield, I think, in particular with Tyler Adams, Musa, and McKenney. I think those players have gotten better yeah. as the tournament's gone on. Musa's been spotty here and there, but McKenney was great against Iran. Tyler Adams has been great, uh, especially against England and against Iran as well. That's where the U.S. can really put their mark on this game. The Dutch, yes, they have Frankie de Jong. But other than that, in the midfield, I think they are vulnerable. And De Jong even, I think, is is sort of a one-dimensional mm-hmm. player in that he likes to drub, dribble the ball forward, is not like a guy who's going to break you open with his passing, and is not someone that you're really afraid of like in a physical battle, even though he's capable. So I, I think the U.S. has an advantage in that midfield space, and that's one of the first things that I'm looking for tomorrow. So, so I think in terms of the midfield, that is certainly the most interesting aspect of this game. I would disagree slightly on Frankie de Jong. I think if he's fit, and there's a big question over that because he's one of the players that apparently might have flu for this game, it's been reported that there's been an outbreak of flu in the, in the, in the Dutch camp. So that could be a factor. De Jong could be affected by that. But if he is, if he is fit... He is one of two Dutch players that I would say kind of strikes fear into me, the other one being Cody Gakpo for obvious reasons. I just think there's a scenario where the US do kind of press the Dutch and do and are the protagonists in this game and De Jong just basically kind of dribbles past them, which I personally think he's one of the few players in the world in his position that, that can do that. He can kind of just brush past three opposition players as if they're not even there. So that is a concern. But I think traditionally, you wouldn't go into a match against the Netherlands if you're the US looking to control the middle. But I agree, Joe, like that, that is a possibility. We saw in the England game where traditionally you would sit back and you would try and absorb the pressure for England. And of course... The US did that in periods in that match, but they also took the game to England through the midfield in, in, in periods of that match. So will Berhalter dare to do that again in, in, in this game? I also think the, the right side for the US is going to be very important. Um, if you look on the Dutch right side, so the other flank, the US left side, they have Denzel Dumfries on that wing. So I think Anthony Robinson might not be able to get forward as much. He might get pinned back a little bit. But then you have Daley Blind on the left side and... Even though there's a bit of contradiction here for the Dutch, if you look through the, the where the majority of their attacks have come from at this World Cup, there's more attacks actually coming through Daily Blind than there is Denzel Dumfries, which is slightly confusing to me. But nonetheless, Blind isn't as as uh, as mobile 
as Dumfries. And so I think the US will be able to stick Dest high and then also have Tim Weah in behind. So I think you, you, you can damage the Dutch that way. I don't think they've been very good in the wide areas. And I also think that's how you can isolate the Dutch back three because the, 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 the Netherlands are likely going to play a, a, a back three of, I think it's going to be, Joe, maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, but Ake's played all three games. Um, Virgil van Dijk, obviously, and then maybe Matthias de Ligt is or, the other or one. Or Timber. That, Timber, I think, possible? has played both the last two games for the Netherlands. Okay. Yeah. So Timber, but he's still a very you know high-quality operator, very experienced at Ajax, even though he's still quite young. So I think it, the wide areas is how the US can, can get at that back three as well. So there are a number of areas for the US where they can they can harm the Dutch. I think on the flip side of things, they need to stop Gakpo from finding space in between the lines. He's been so effective at this World Cup of dropping deep and then dribbling forward. I think the US have generally done a good job of protecting their back four at this tournament, but they're going to have to take their performance to an even higher level against Gakpo to stop him doing that. So I'm not saying that the Dutch can't cause the US problems. Of course they can. But there are a number of key areas in this game where I think the US might actually have the edge. We've seen the United States in this tournament come out in like more of a defensive 4-4-2, uh, usually, I think, to limit the, uh, the opposition's ability to play through the middle. Uh, I'm of the opinion they shouldn't do that in this game. I'd love to hear what you all think about that. And Joe, I have a couple specific questions for you about what the U.S. could do. But with that back three, as you mentioned, Graham, my assumption is it'll be back three. It'll be Daly Blint as left wing back, as you mentioned, Denzel Dumfries on the right, Frankie de Jong provided he can play. I think if he can't play, that is a major bonus to the United States. I'm assuming he will play even if he's only at like 70%. Uh, but Frankie de Jong could be Burkhaus, could be uh, Darun, uh, and then it could be Gakpo ahead of them, could be Klaassen, could be Depay and Gakpo. But either way, a like 3-4-1-2 is the shape that I'm expecting. And I think if the U.S. set up in that 4-3-3, I think whoever the number nine is, uh, basically, let's say Van Dyke gets the ball, he plays it to Ake. I can see then that number nine just sitting between Ake and uh, Van Dyke, and now you've kind of at least cut off one side of the pitch. You're going to have your two central midfielders, more like your more number eights, McKinney and Musa, most likely, sitting on De Jong and Darun, if it is Darun. You could have Tyler Adams screening uh, b- behind them, especially if Cody Gakpo is moving around. And then you could have your wide attackers sort of like either pinched inside on one side to cover that outlet pass, but have the other one sitting on the other wing back. And I feel like the United States, if they are aggressive and they do try to cut off those options, you can pretty effectively force the Dutch into playing vertically. And I think that's to the U.S.'s benefit. I think they then back themselves to win some of those aerial challenges and reestablish possession. My question then for Joe was going to be, number one, of Musa McKinney or another potential number eight, who do you trust the most to basically sit on Frankie de Jong? And maybe, actually, you know what? I'm not going to ask Joe this. I'm going to ask Graham this because Joe doesn't really rate Frankie de Jong. Uh, I do. So does Graham. I think he's incredible carrying the ball out uh, individually. He is. And so to I be think clear, he is really good at that. Yeah. yeah. So I, can't, I think you can't really afford to have somebody who isn't fully aware of what he's doing or how much of a threat he is or can just go diving in and get beaten. And now that whole defensive shape breaks down. So Joe or Graham, either one of you, who would you trust the most for the United States to track the young and sort of limit his effectiveness in this game? Is the right answer Yunus Musa, Joe? <laughs> I mean, I honestly don't think I have an answer to that question because I don't think the U.S. will try to mark De Jong man for man. Like, I, I don't even know that he'll be in a zone long enough for the U.S. to really latch onto him. He'll be shaded towards the left side. So based off of how the U.S. set up against Iran, Musa could be the central midfielder on the U.S.'s right, the, the Netherlands' left. It could also be Tim Weah out on that wing who's responsible. I think it's going to be a group effort, Taylor, to be honest with you, because De Jong is really good at that, that thing of driving the ball forward. He is one of the best ball progressors on the dribble in the world. And so you have to pay attention to him. I don't think you can just say, hey, Eunice, go take care of Frankie and, and then we'll take care of the rest. I think it's got to be a group effort between whoever the right side of number eight is. I hope it is Musa because I yeah. think McKenney on the left worked better. Then you have Wea, you have Jedi Robinson on that side. You're sort of marshalling him from player to player. I think the U.S. will defend in that way. That has to be a point of emphasis. The Dutch love to attack down their left because they have Frankie on that side and because they have Cody Gakpo on that side. Graham, you mentioned Gakpo between the lines. Another area that the U.S. have to pay attention to is Gakpo getting him behind. According to the, the stats that FIFA have released and Kieran Doyle, uh, talked me through some of this stuff earlier this week. Gakpo gets him behind more than any other Dutch player. Like he he loves to drop and show between, but his frame, he's so lanky that he accelerates very quickly and can spin him behind very, very easily. That for me is a huge concern. The U.S. could target space in behind the Dutch, just as the Dutch will do to the United States. What does that center center back pairing look like from Greg Berhalter? Does he maybe shift to a back three? I would be surprised, but mm. not totally shocked if that happens. 
either way, can the U.S.'s center backs or can Tyler Adams do enough to sweep in behind? I mean, there's so many different ways this could go, but Gakpo targeting that space in behind could be lethal for the U.S. if they can't manage it properly. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I would say, like, with with Gakpo, that's also one where I think the United States can't afford to just focus. You can't have Tyler Adams. I think a lot of people would say, just put Tyler Adams on him. He's covered the most distance of any player at this World Cup. He can mark Gakpo out. He can cover him wherever he goes. And I understand that logic, but but I think, number one, Gakpo is good enough that he will still find time on the ball. He will still find space or he'll still get in behind. But also, it moves Tyler Adams out of the middle and it just creates more opportunities. I think Gakpo is, is a very good player, but if you put one of your best midfielders on him or make him just focused on Gakpo or, or have him overly focused, it creates opportunities for other players. It opens up spaces where the U.S. doesn't tend to have them and then you have defenders having to sort of improvise what they're doing or figuring it out on the fly and I and I and I think that could also be detrimental to the United States. Gakpo scares me a lot, but overly focusing on him and forgetting that Memphis Depay can score goals, Frankie De Jong can stride forward with goals, Denzel Dumfries, it can be a very dangerous attacker if you don't recognize that he's kind of popping up in space. Daily Blint, though he is older, though he is not particularly fleet of foot, can also be very key in the attack. He is very good in his delivery. So I think there are plenty of different areas that the United States could uh, like come under threat. And I think overly mm-hmm. focusing on one would definitely be to their detriment. In, in terms of the team selection for this game, do we agree that there are kind of three questions or three areas where there, there, there's decisions basically to be made? So for me, it's who plays at centre-back alongside Ream. I think the aerial threat of Gakpo and the Dutch in general means that we're probably likely to see Zimmerman come back in for CCV. Seems like a, a, a likely outcome there. Then there's the midfield. I don't think Baralter will change the midfield just because he's stuck with it in all three games so far. But I guess there's the possibility, Taylor, you're talking about, do you put someone on Frankie de Jong and just have someone stick with him? Well, as Brendan Aronson, maybe the Energizer Buzzy Bunny, who could who could do that? And then it's then it's the number nine question. Josh Sargent obviously has a, a bit of a knock. I saw Baralter today saying they're kind of monitoring him day to day. Pulisic seems like he's going to be fine, but they're not so sure about Sargent. And then there's the argument of, well, does Sargent give you what you need anyway if he's going to have to drop deep to help out defensively on Frankie de Jong? And if that is the group effort, is he the player for that? Is it the game for Jesus Ferreira? So I think there are, those are the three areas. Does anyone see any changes happening in other parts of the team because for me personally I think things are pretty set yeah I don't think the midfield shifts for this match I think it will be that MMA midfield I I don't really think the the right wing spot or the fullbacks are going to shift I think it will be Dest at right back Jedi at left back and Tim Way on the right what happens with Christian Pulisic is a question so his fitness and availability you know maybe he doesn't start and so we see Brendan Aronson up on the left wing I think that that would be a solid swap for this match of course I'd prefer to see Giorena above all but I mean, maybe that's happening. Maybe it's not at this at this point in the tournament. The the only other thing, Graham, is the the nine in the center back. So I I don't really have a hard preference between Zimmerman or CCV. I think I'd prefer the U.S. to stick with the back four, which will go to a back two in possession. I think that has worked well for them. I I think maybe you stick with CCV next to next to Reem because he has a bit more mobility potentially than the Zimmerman. But I don't know that I have a hard preference there. The one thing I do feel pretty confident in is that Berhalter will go with Haji Wright if Josh Sargent isn't fit. I think Wright and his ability to exploit space in behind is maybe a better fit for this game against the Netherlands if you can have other players pulling the center backs out. Then Haji Wright runs in behind and spins and does that stuff that he does a lot of the time in Turkey. Although maybe as I'm talking out loud right now, maybe it's Ferreira to drop in and drive you know the, the Dutch center backs forward to create space for Weah and Aronson or Pulisic or whoever it is. So that is a tough call for Berhalter at that, that number nine spot. Adjusting Graham's question a little bit, I, I think I would say I don't really have a clear preference on who I want to start at, at the number nine spot. Uh, I think whoever starts there, we can sort of figure out the reasoning behind it fairly quickly. And so then it just becomes who is executing what they're being asked to do the best. So like, I don't think it makes sense to be bent out of shape if it is Ferreira, if it is Sargent, but I think it's then worth evaluating why they've gone for them and what they're offering. And, and I think that's how I'm going to evaluate it. Whereas if it were... Like if Aaron Long came in and started the center back, I would be much more like that doesn't make any sense. I don't like that at all. I think I would keep CCV in for this one uh, just because I think he he handled his first start well. I think he like listened to instruction. He adjusted accordingly. And I think he was also put 
Uh, rewatching that game, I feel like he was put at times in difficult positions where he was having to cover for Des being forward or Robinson being forward and sort of trying to track a runner while also trying to limit what another open player was doing. I, I think that's a really difficult thing, especially in your first World Cup start. So I think if you trust him there, I wouldn't hate if they trusted him here. Similarly, mm-hmm. I wouldn't really be furious if Zimmerman came back in and he were that kind yep. of aerial threat. But I, I like the idea of CCV on the ball just a little bit more than I like Walker Zimmerman. I, I think CCV... And Zimmerman, it's an indicator, right, of what the what the game plan is going to be, what the focus is going to be. So CCV, he completed ten out of ten line breaking passes. Uh, I read against uh, against Iran. So if he starts, that kind of says to me that the US are going to try and be the protagonist. They're going to try and play through the Dutch. I think if Zimmerman starts, it's a maybe slightly more reactive game plan and approach from from the US. But similar to you, Taylor, I I can see arguments for both. I think Zimmerman's um, quality in the air makes me feel a little bit better defensively against Gakpo and even Van Dyke from uh, from set pieces when the Dutch win corners and things like that. So I think that the US have options in either way. I, I don't think there'll be anything to kind of hit Berhalter over the head with. Are we confident that Christian Pulisic's going to start this game? I know we saw that he had the all clear, but I mean, someone who went was hospitalised a couple of days ago. Uh, do we see like maybe Aronson starting ahead of him, Graham? I personally didn't until we started talking about this, but it seems like the guys maybe have a bit more doubt about that one. I mean, Pulisic today was saying, I don't know how much I believe him, but basically was saying he didn't get hit in the balls and it was a genuine injury. Yeah. Um, you imagined it. I can't. I kind of think it was him getting hit in the balls. But um, yeah, the fact that he's back in the team hotel for you know the video of them all arriving from the game and it doesn't really seem like to me it was a serious injury and given that he's really delivered in the two big moments for the US at this tournament. I don't think we've seen a game from Pulisic in this in this tournament where he's really taken it by the scruff of the neck and, and kind of dominated. But if you look at the two moments, the US have scored two goals at this World Cup and both of them have involved Pulisic. One, the assist, the second one, the goal. I think you kind of have to start him at this point. But I'm interested in what Taylor and Joe think. I think if he's fit, you start him. But otherwise, I, I don't know if he's fit genuinely. It seemed like he maybe wasn't 100% in training based off of what, I, what I've read. But if he's ready to go, of course you play him. If if he's maybe 45 fit, I would probably bring him on in the second half. Yeah, I, I think m- my read on the situation is that uh, there is uh, testicular discomfort, but I think there is also some sort of Ew. bruising, some sort of deep tissue injury that when he comes back on the pitch, he gets over the initial discomfort and just outright acute pain, uh, but then continues to feel that pain, which which happens if you get, like, let, let's go with a calf. If you get a dead leg in your calf, even if that goes away, you can just still feel that aching discomfort. And I think if you're not quite sure of the severity of the issue, if you're not sure if something's wrong, I understand why they would pull him at halftime, send him for evaluation just to make sure that nothing like more serious was an issue and you can also put in a fully fit player who can run some more in a game that you need to hold on to that win uh, I think that makes sense and I could then see a scenario in which he gets the screen they say yep you're good to go maybe there's a little bit of discomfort but even if there is he can play through that knowing that it's nothing more serious this time the only wrinkle and I don't think this is likely but this is me maybe just not having enough sleep maybe me being in a weird mood Berhalter was asked in the press conference about Gio Reyna, and he said, uh, I think a lot of it comes down to timing and circumstance. If you look at how the games have unfolded, we've had the lead and had to hold on to the lead later in games. The only game that we didn't have that scenario, we actually put him in to help get the victory. Joe's rolling his eyes because it was for seven minutes. I'm not even looking at the screen. I'm just assuming Joe's uh, rolling his you eyes. You are correct. <laughs> yes. So it's just how we use use him in the effective way, most effective way. He's a really talented player. We're looking for the right moment, but he can no doubt help this team. And there's a small part of me that wonders if Pulisic can't go or if they aren't sure he's 100%. If that is Berhalter, like, saying, yeah, we want to try to get him in. We hope we can find a way. And then starting him. Like, I I don't think that's likely. But if I see Reyna start, I'm going to assume that that quote was a little bit of gamesmanship on his part. Is that the one thing that if we see Gio Reyna in the lineup, the starting lineup, does that is that the thing that makes you think? Let's go! Like we're we are we are going for it, Joe. I feel like the answer is yes for you. Hundred percent. I would love to see Jiren in the lineup. I think you. I, I think he adds value to this team in virtually every scenario. I still interpret those comments that Taylor read from Beralter there as injury cover up. Like I, I genuinely think that's what it is. I think we'll find that out later on. Beralter is a smart enough guy to know that Jiren helps you win soccer games, and the U.S. wanted to win soccer games in the group stage. If he's fit against Wales, there's just no way I think that you that you don't put him in in that game. So I would love to see Gio Reyna tomorrow, Graham. And my fingers and toes, even though I'm in this dark space you guys can't see, 
are crossed, so we do see him. <laughs> Joe, just to be clear, when you said injury cover-up, you're, you're not saying that, like, Reina, or maybe you are, but are you saying Reina is, like, cover for an injury, or are you saying what I think, at least I tend to believe, which is that Reina's more injured than we're yes, hearing? that and one. So, okay, gotcha, cool. Yeah, hopefully. Fingers crossed, folks, fingers crossed. One other thing on injuries, uh, like, the other part of the flu story that I think is really interesting is that Burhalter then mentioned, yeah, we got hit by that, too. And it's in the press conference. Adam, he says, like, did you get it? And Adams is like, nah, I'm good. And then Berhalter says, like, a bunch of our staff got it, you know, some of, some of the squad. But I, I can't remember if he says players specifically did. But I also don't think he said, like, none of the players did. And we've had that question about why has the U.S. looked less fit when that has always been the hallmark of that team. And I do wonder if there are certain players who got the flu. And, like, maybe Dest is one of them. Maybe Weston McKinney is one of them. Two players that I think of as being more fit, generally speaking, but have come out early in these games. And so maybe I'm, I'm grasping at straws. Maybe I'm reaching for something. But if it were the case that they had players who had the flu and played through it, that makes more sense to me why you're subbing them out, why they're not able to go. And it makes me feel both better that you have them back and fully fit and also that the Dutch are now facing that same issue themselves. I think that's going to be a really interesting wrinkle to this game is just how fit everyone is and how much everyone can go. I think it's a game where if the U.S. is in it, if it's nil-nil late in the second half, I start to feel like the U.S., doesn't have that pressure to win the game the way the Dutch certainly will. And I think it's still going to be the Dutch as favorites. It's still, if they go to extra time, I still expect the Dutch to have just that better attacking ability to make something happen. But I also think there will be that pressure on them that they have high expectations. They're the Netherlands. This is the U.S. They should be winning this game. And I can see that costing them in the end. Yeah, I like the flu theory, Taylor. Although, um, if people were interested in conspiracy theories about airborne illnesses, there's probably other podcasts they could listen to with a different text. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My last question for you guys is, how do you think this one plays out? Do you think the US need to come out swinging and and press and pressure early? Um, And who who ultimately goes home with the win here, Taylor? Uh, I will give you a specific answer. It's first going to sound like I'm giving you a roundabout answer. But like the thing that I would first say to listeners is really pay attention to the opening 10 minutes, which is like, oh, pay attention to the game? Shocker. But what I mean by that is just what you're talking about with the number nine or with the center backs. I think see who's starting and then see what those 10 minutes look like. See what shapes they're taking up on the defensive side. See, are they trying to hit over the over the top immediately? Are they trying to play through the middle? I think you'll get a good idea of what the U.S. is doing in those 10 minutes. And Burhalter has done different things in different games. Yeah. And so I, I don't want to come out and say, like, they're going to do this and they're going to play this way and it's going to be this person and then have that be different. Uh, I think that the United States is going to play the game that we've come to expect from them against stronger opposition. I think they're going to run a lot. I think they're going to work really hard. I think they're going to let it get physical if it needs to be physical. I think they're going to try to slow it down when they have possession. That's another reason why I think CCV makes sense because on the ball, I trust him and Reem to keep it moving, to not get caught in possession, to not give it away cheaply, and basically invite the Dutch to pressure them, invite the Dutch to step out a little bit more, and then open up some space through the middle. Um, But I see it being a cagey physical game through the first half. Uh, And if it stays that way, and if the United States are able to take the chances that they haven't really been able to take uh, earlier in the tournament, I see the U.S. getting a very narrow win. I can see a scenario in which they lose 2-0, but I'm choosing to believe that the U.S. will win. So I think Berhalter's done a good job of setting up the U.S. in all three games that they've played at this World Cup. It's really the... If I can break a, a match down into three phases, it's the third phase that I know it worked against Iran and Zimmerman comes on and the US see it out. That still makes me nervous. The the changes that he's made at this World Cup, I don't think they've been as effective as how he set up the team. So my prediction is that for a large period of this match, the US is going to feel pretty good about how this game is going. It's really the last phase that I think is going to decide it. And that's where I'm concerned about kind of the individual talent that the Dutch have. Cody Gakpo, Memphis Depay, if he's starting or if he's coming off the bench, I think he could be a problem. He's a a player that pushes and pulls opposition defenders all over the place. Um, So my my head says the Dutch grind it out in the final phase of that match. My my gut, um, sorry, my head says that. My gut says that the US is going to find a way just because the tactical matchup, I really like it for the US. As soon as that match kind of materialized, I thought this is one of the better big hitters the US could have drawn in this last 16. So that's the split that I've got. The gut says the US and my head says the Netherlands. 
Joe, your split? My thoughts are very similar to Graham. I think the Netherlands will control a lot of the game. The U.S. will likely still be set up fairly well towards the latter stages of the match. I could see this one going to extra time. I, I think when it's as narrow as it is and when the U.S. maybe have the midfield advantage, but the Dutch have advantages, I think, in the attack and in the defense, I think you're talking about a relatively even game. But I think the Dutch have the talent advantage in, in the World Cup and in soccer in general. That goes a long way. I am going to say the Netherlands with a 1-0 win. That's what I predicted earlier uh, for, for some written stuff. I'm going to, to back that here as well, just so that I'll either, I'll, I'll either be right or I'll be happy by the time we're recording tomorrow. And that's a decent split for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good compromise I like that very much Joe uh, thank you very much guys this game of course Netherlands USA taking place at 10 Eastern on Saturday we'll be doing BR Bleacher Report uh, shows before and after the game so check out the app if you have access to that and of course we'll be here on the feed after the game and on our Patreon so do join us there as well but for now Taylor Rockwell thanks thank you my friend this has been fun as always it has indeed. Joe Lowry, good to have us back in four time zones and to see your beautiful face under a bed in complete darkness. Oh, thank you, Ryan. It is, it's <laughs> nice to be back, even if we're all not together. It's weird. It's a weird vibe. Also, I'm tossing out a quick Argentina VSP for tomorrow because I want to win the Golden Chewy that's being tracked in the Discord. I think Leo Messi is going to create at least seven chances, according to Fat Mob. That's all I got. All right, uh, edit that out so Joe doesn't get nope. the VSP leak, Nope, please. I'm editing, editing so this. that's going to stay <laughs> If Joe's doing one, I'm doing one because we're tied at the top, I think. Go, go on then, Do it then. Okay, so I'm going to go for a Netherlands-USA VSP, and it's that Netherlands' expected goals without Cody Gakpo will be under 0.5. So I'll keep this short. Basically, if you look at all their v- their expected goals throughout the tournament, they're not creating a lot of chances without Gakpo, so I think that will continue against the US. Curse you, Graham. That's a good pick. That's a good Australia pick. Australia concede a penalty. Boom. Done. Ah! I wanted me to be the only one. Boo. <laughs> so now, well, Joe, your plan is foiled. VSP's done. Well, you got, <laughs> you, yeah, we, we got that one done. And I didn't ask about VSP's until the very, very end of the show. But here we are. Good stuff. I'm not Listen, sure you ever asked about them. No, I just sure inserted just myself. <laughs> yep. yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, there we go. It got done all the same. <laughs> Listener, thank you for joining us on the feed so much. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about the US game and much more. Probably the other game that's happening tomorrow too. But for now, bye. Bye.